Well, the Mission Church here, we have a, a few central convictions that we believe make us who we are, things that we aspire to. One of those things is that we believe that doctrine matters. We believe that what a person thinks about God, self, about the Word, really matters. That's why we care to help people in what they believe. This doesn't just come out of thin air for us. This isn't one of those things that just goes, man, I'm such a heady intellectual type. I would just love to know more stuff and help other people to know more stuff. No, it's because throughout the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament to New, incredible truths are proclaimed, explained, even defended, and then built upon those truths are these things that we are to go do. This is all over the Bible for us. We're given doctrine. Believe this, and in light of that, go do this. Our passage today is going to do likewise. The passages we've been reading up until this point in Hebrews have been largely telling us of amazingly beautiful, true things, gospel realities, particularly the way that the new covenant, that's the day we live in now, after the days of Jesus, is distinctive from the old covenant, the days prior to Jesus. And so uh, we've been seeing this case being made over the course of the past handful of chapters. This has been many months as a church looking through these texts together. Truths have been proclaimed. And, And why does it matter so much that we believe these things, A, and B, what should we do once we can say, okay, I believe these things? Well, I think that we're gonna see a little bit of that this week. The author is about to give us three commands, three imperatives, three instructions of things that we as Christians are supposed to go and do. And so we're going to see those in our text today in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. What I'd like to do to set us up, though, is to first uh, remind us of what has been stated up until this point, particularly in the last uh, beginning of this chapter. That's verses 1 through 18. We covered that passage last week. The author told us that the Old Testament law had but a shadow of the good things that were to come in Christ Jesus. He pointed to the Old Testament sin sacrifices and how they necessarily repeated year after year. He did that multiple times. He explained that the reason those sacrifices were repeated was because they were unable to permanently take away sins. And so the fact that they were ongoing was a constant reminder of the people's sin and separation from a holy God. He did all of these things for a purpose, to point us towards our need for Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, he's lived a perfect life. He had died for the sins of all who will ever, ever believe in him. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. And he did not merely display outward obedience without a deep love for God, as was the case with the Pharisees and many religious people before him, before them. But Jesus did all the will of God, both the heart and the head, both the actions outwardly and the disposition inwardly. He fulfilled all of it perfectly. And in so doing, he does away with the first covenant in order to establish the second. That's what the text said last week. And for those of us who are a part of that second covenant, by belief in Jesus, we have both been perfected and 
are being sanctified. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been fully and finally forgiven by God. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. And that's where we pick up today. I'm going to read through our text, verses 19 through 25, and then uh, pray and go back through a verse or two at a time. Follow along with me, if, if you will, please. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage today and we see three instructions, commandments, uh, imperatives, we might say, Lord, we pray that we would take them to heart, that we would see all of these true doctrines been laid out have a meaning, have a purpose for us. We are to believe and know these things, and by believing them, that should produce for us and obedience to these commands. Help us to see them. Help us to embrace them. Lord, keep me from error as I preach this and help for all of the congregation this morning uh, to be watching carefully. Use your Holy Spirit, Father. Send him to, to do a work in our hearts that we may love you more and obey you more because of this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back through a couple verses at a time together. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Pausing, because this is already a couple of verses in. It's a run-on sentence going on here, which is typical in the New Testament. But you'll notice that it starts with therefore. So again, it's built on the doctrine, the true statements that have already been made about Jesus and how he has fulfilled the old covenant. He's become the great high priest. He's become the sacrifice that we need. And we can be forgiven if we believe in him. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, have confidence to enter the holy places. I want you to think about something with me for just a moment. Even if you hadn't seen this already, if you've not been with us the entire uh, book of Hebrews up until this point, what you would have noticed if you read chapters 1 through 9, is repeatedly Jesus is compared with Old Testament people or figures. Chapter 1, Jesus is compared with the prophets, and he's seen as better. He's compared with the angels later there, and he's seen as better, greater, higher. He's better and higher than the angels. He's compared with Moses and Abraham and, and Joshua and even this Old Testament king priest named Melchizedek. On repeat, the, the, the person of the great high priest, that office in the Old Testament, Jesus is constantly compared with all of those Old Testament people. And in each situation, it goes, that guy was here, and Jesus is better over and over and over. What Jesus gets because he's better. What Jesus does, because he's greater. But you'll notice, right here in this verse, the author switches gears just slightly to show us what we get as Jesus is our great high priest. What we receive. We get to enter 
the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We enter, not just Jesus as the great high priest, but in him now we enter. He has provided a way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. We've already been offered forgiveness, as we saw last passage, but now we see that our new status as forgiven, we're cleansed. It results in our being able to enter into God's presence. And not only that, but our access is no longer limited to once a year. You'll remember the great high priest could only go in once a year into the holy place in the tabernacle or later in the temple. Only one time and with great uh, blood sacrifice and ritual. But because Jesus has done that once and for all, you and I have a access to God that no one in the Old Testament could have had. That means better to be any random new covenant member than the great high priest of the Old Testament. Better to be a Christian today than a human high priest in the line of Aaron back in the Old Testament. We get to access God every day. In fact, it says that we can do so with confidence. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, he's going to say something similar in verse 21. We'll get back to that idea. Jesus has opened up the way into God's presence. He's done this through the curtain. Uh, The Old Testament, there was a, a curtain, literally a veil, between the holy place and the most holy place. And the only way a priest could get through there was only the high priest, once a year, could go. Th- the only way to get into the holy place was to go through that curtain. Now we go to the, whole, the most holy place through Jesus' flesh. It is by his death alone that we get access to God. We get access to him through Jesus alone. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no back doors. There's no windows. There's no trap door to get into that space. The only way a person can get to God is through Jesus. That is it. This is why we preach Jesus so ferociously to the world, to Muslims who reject Jesus, to Jews who reject Jesus, to so many other worldviews and faiths who have in mind a kind of Jesus, but we preach the Jesus crucified. Why? Because you don't get anything good apart from him. In fact, it even says in 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is why we don't just preach good works. We don't just preach to the atheist, hey, believe in supernatural things. Believe that there's a God. We want them to know the true God, Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate. Christians should be the most thankful and grateful of all people because of this. Last week, I hope that you celebrated with other believers in Thanksgiving time, and I hope that you prayed together and you offered up thanksgiving to the Lord, thankful for what he's given you. There is nothing good that you have that did not come from Christ. Even those who deny him receive a common grace kind of blessing. We all ought to receive the immediate and instant wrath of God for our sin. But God offers mercy and grace. Additionally, we should be the most humble of all people. Because apart from Jesus, we have nothing to offer. This idea continues. This run-on sentence goes on. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Great priest. Jesus is our great high priest, and he's over the house of God. A similar passage was already stated back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, which says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So he is our great priest and he is over us, over us, the house of God. We are the house of God if we are new covenant members, if we're believers in Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it say in verse 22? This is the first of the three commandments, first of the three instructions, imperatives. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. Because Jesus has opened the way for us, we should, we ought to draw near. That's what we should do. This is not now for Jesus to open the doors and say, anyone who just wants to, come, come this way. We are commanded to come, to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. This idea of being purified, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The same language is used about Old Testament rituals, and it's been stated over the course of the past three chapters so far. We've seen evil conscience, purified consciences were needed. Uh, We've seen uh, bodies being washed with water. We've seen the sprinkling that was a part of the Old Testament sacrifice. They'd sprinkle blood towards the people as as an image of washing away their, their, their sins, purifying them. This goes back to a passage in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, that tells of this happening in the days of the New Covenant. It's not unfamiliar for us sometimes, Ezekiel 36, 26. If you don't remember the reference point, that's the verse that tells us that in the New Covenant, that God will grab our hearts of stone, remove them, and give us hearts of flesh. Remember that passage? Remove the heart of stone, and I will give them hearts of flesh. That was verse 26. Verse 25 of that same passage reads like this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. There are a handful of passages in the Old Testament prophetic writings that say these same things, that I will sprinkle you clean, I will wash you clean. We see imagery all the time, and we see direct statements to that effect. That this will happen for us. That those in the new covenant can come forward with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We're even commanded to do that because our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Because our bodies have been washed with pure water. Some have seen this as baptism specifically. Well, that's because we've been baptized. That's the idea. And baptism certainly does uh, reference this. Certainly the idea of baptism, one of the images in the New Testament of baptism is the idea of our, our sins being washed away in that water. That is true. That's one of the images baptism is supposed to bear. But it sounds more likely that this is the kind of washing done by God to his people, like it says in Ezekiel chapter 25, 36, excuse me, And the way that we see this talked about in places like Ephesians chapter 5, where Jesus washes his bride, the church. Jesus washes us with the word. He's the one doing this kind of washing. In fact, Paul will write to Titus later the same idea of our needing to be washed 
with the water of the word, the spirit of God washing us clean. You and I are, are called to draw near. We're commanded because of what Jesus has done that we are to draw near. For the record, this is where actually our Pado-Baptist brothers and sisters see sprinkling, aspersion, or effusion, if you're ever wondering about that. Where do we see New Testament ideas of sprinkling clean? And that idea that maybe that's, that's the way we should be honoring that practice today. That's where our Pado-Baptist brothers and sisters will see that. But if you're a believer, you already have been sprinkled clean. You have been purified by the washing of the word. This is something done by God to you. Not done by yourself. Not, not, not just because somebody put you in baptism or sprinkled you with something, but because he has done this. In fact, that's why it says that it is not your face, but your hearts sprinkled clean. From what? From an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. That idea of pure water is not just earthly water that we might drink, but something pure, sinless, and perfect. In Jesus, we are washed. I've known so many believers in my life who do not heed this command. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And here's what I, what I mean by I've observed this happen all the time. I've had this exact, uh, this impulse in my own heart in life and have failed on this account so many times in my life. When you feel guilt or shame about something, Let's say that as a believer, you fall in sin. It is not uncommon for even a believer, when we sin, to feel the weight and the guilt and the shame of that sin. And that's good. Even as a non-believer, you could feel that weight of guilt and shame. You just don't have the connection points for the solution to it. And oftentimes, even the Bible might refer to it as a worldly sorrow. It's more of a, of a sentiment of the a frustration of the, the worldly kind of issues that will come about for the fact that I did this, this sinful or wrong thing. But as believers, we feel that guilt and shame not only because we know we've done something wrong, but we can't feign ignorance on it. We sinned against our holy and perfect and righteous God. We know him. We know what we deserve. We know that we've been washed, and yet we sin anyway. And so, so many that I've known, and again, in my own impulses, just to go away. We avoid God. This is when at night you sin, you fail, and the next morning you just you, you can't bring yourself to open the Bible. You can't bring yourself just to set aside prayer time. Why? Because you're ashamed. Because of guilt. But we are commanded to draw near. For the record, this drawing near, this isn't a come to church. Draw near. I think that we're going to get to that a little bit later in this text. We're going to get to the getting together with believers a little bit later. But I don't think this is just... Come, draw, let us draw near means make sure you go to church. I also don't think that this exclusively means for us to set aside like a quiet time. Certainly you should do those things. I think even this text is going to help us with that. But drawing near is with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This means you get close to God. It's intimacy with him. It's talking with him all the time, inviting him into your thoughts, developing an all-day relationship with him, even when you sin and struggle and fail. In other words, you don't need more time in your schedule for you to draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Yes, set aside time. But this kind of drawing near 
can be done when you're heading into a meeting, when you're in the meeting, when you're training, when you're doing parenting, when you're cooking dinner. You see what I'm saying? Draw near in full assurance. Second command. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is the second imperative. It's in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. We ought to hold fast the confession of our hope. Now, just for greatest clarity on what he might have in mind here, let's look back earlier in this exact same letter in chapter 4. The author used almost exactly the same language, okay, and gave a little bit more. So I'm going I'm to bring you back. I'll put the slide up here. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Let me read this to you. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find the grace to help in time of need. So what's in mind in this holding fast to our confession? Not perfection. Perfection is not expected. This holding fast does not imagine the unshakable Christian who never struggles, but one who is heeding the encouragement to continually go to God for grace and for mercy. You see, because of sin, we sin, he didn't. We follow temptation. He knows that temptation, but he didn't fall. Why is it that we go before the Lord? What kind of confession are we holding to? It is not that confession held as we look at our life. Wow, I'm I'm awesome. It's during those times, it's in the moments when we fall, when we fail, we hold fast our confession and do so without wavering. That's what the command is here, without wavering. Why should we not waver? Is it because we're especially stubborn as Christians? Is it because we have some ability to preserve ourselves? No. Look what the verse said. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's why. The basis for our holding fast is his faithfulness, not our own. What if some were unfaithful? Paul rhetorically asks in Romans 3. What if they were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. You and I will fail. You and I will be faithless often in our life. There will always be a category of our life that is still touched by the corruption of our flesh until we die. And that stigma no longer sticks to us. We hold fast because he remains faithful even when we are faithless. Kids, if you're, if you're kids in here, listen up for a second. You remember the story of David and Goliath? Do you remember that story? David and Goliath. David goes before the giant, and David's just a young boy, right? And he brings with him a, a sling and stones to fight against Goliath. And when he goes out there, one of the parts of the story that often gets missed that I love is it says that David ran out to meet the giant. It means he didn't kind of slowly, reluctantly inch his way forward. But he ran towards Goliath. Why? Is it because he knew, I am so strong. 
I am so good. I am able to do this. No, because he knew that God was faithful, that God could defeat the giant. That's why he could run. In fact, all of those stories of faith in the Old Testament are a person trusting in what God can do, not self. That's the whole point. We're going to see a roll call of faith coming up here very soon in our teaching through the book of Hebrews. And we're going to see believer after believer after believer in the Old Testament doing amazing things, not because they're just so good, but because they know that God is so good. They appeal to him. Our confidence must be rooted in the faithfulness of God. This is why, remember when Jesus tells his disciples that they will have to stand before governors and kings in persecution, and they may have to give their lives. And he says, when you stand before them, don't be afraid of what you will say because you are especially wise. No. Don't be afraid of what you will say because the Holy Spirit will show up and he will tell you what to say in that moment. That's why. It's not because we're making ourselves so resilient for the day of battle that when that comes, I won't give in. That's not why. It's because God will show up. We don't look to believers and go, ah, that, that's a strong believer. That's the kind of one who will, who will die before he'll dishonor God. She will lay down her life before she gives up her faith. She's so strong. No, it's because God is faithful. You and I must look to the nature and character of God as faithful. And on that basis, we hold fast the confession of our, our hope. We stick true to the gospel that we are not saved by our own faithfulness, by our own work, but by God. He continues on to the third imperative. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stir up one another to love and good works. This is what you and I should do. This is what we're being commanded to do here, this third commandment. Stimulate one another. Provoke one another. That's what the word can mean, you know? I like that, provoke. Provoke your brothers and sisters to love and good works. In light of the persecution and suffering that this Hebrew audience is facing and are going to have to face again, the author encourages them to stir up one another to love and good works. You may not always realize this, but you need stirring. You need someone in your life to stir you up to love and good works. And what are we to do that for? To help remind one another. To remind one another to love and to honor God with our lives. Our lives are not to be that of a monk who voluntarily submits himself to solitary confinement, isolated from other believers. We are to be in fellowship with one another, doing this kind of stirring. This is stirring. I want you to notice two things here. First, it doesn't say, and let us stir up one another. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another. Isn't that interesting? For the, I think we're supposed to stir up one another. But the let us consider how to 
is a get creative. Consider how you can do that with people. There may be all types of different ways that you may stir up love and good works in your brothers and sisters. There may be different kinds of methodologies and ways that you do this and personalities of the people that you're trying to be helpful for. Uh, you may utilize tools like texting and WhatsApp. You, you may use Facebook and connect with people in that way. You may do a group call with brothers and sisters regularly throughout the week. You may schedule out time slots where you're going to get together to do this. It's probably the most common way to do that. But we are to consider how, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Lord, how can I help my brother and sister love and do good and righteous works? You know, the world wants to tell us, don't you look out whatever anybody else is doing, just Don't judge anyone else. Just watch yourself and worry about yourself. The Bible's constantly telling us to care enough for our brothers and sisters in the faith that we actually try to prod them on in love and good works. Notice also here, God commands you not only to be stirred, but to do the stirring. In other words, it might be true that a believer could say, well, I'm open to being stirred. I'm open to being encouraged in this. Whenever, I'm just waiting for someone to do that. We are to be actively stirring others. You are to consider how you can stir up one another in love and good works. Not just be the recipient of it, but the one offering it as well. And however we do this, one thing is certain by this text. In order to do this, you must meet together. And that's why verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Not neglecting to meet together. Meet together. Some of your translations might translate meet together as our assembling together, which is actually a much better translation than this one is here. The word is episunagogain. There's a, there's a word in the middle there, synagogue. Does that sound familiar? It's synagogue. It's where we get the word synagogue from. It was the place of gathering for the people of God in worship. There are other words just for gathering together, getting together with two or three buddies. This getting together is synagogue, assemble together. It is the term used in the Old Testament of gathering the church of God together. That kind of assembling taking place. The reason I point that out is that you should know that there's been an attempt in recent years for people to see this text as fully satisfied by a few people meeting in a coffee shop together. Fully satisfied by that. Brothers and sisters, that will not do by this text. The idea is of a far more intentional, regular assembly than a mere occasional informal get-together at someone's house, coffee shop, restaurant. It's a much more intentional, formalized, planned gather. Of course you should gather all the time with people, house to house, in the coffee shops, at the restaurants, at the park. Yes, do that all the time, but this kind of meeting together refers to a much greater kind of assembly. And it's sad we have to hammer this today. That we've been commanded by our Lord to meet. You know, it's kind of like if, if I was helping a, a married couple who was going through some struggles, and I said, well, how often do you go on a date, just the two of you eye to eye together? Oh, it's been years. What? What? Oh, my goodness. I didn't realize I needed to remind you. You need to date your spouse. 
You need to get alone together. Some way, some format, you need, you need to do that. I think this text has that similar sentiment to me. Like, my goodness, Christians need to be encouraged so they don't fall prey to neglecting that. It's why he says some have been in the habit of not doing it. Up until about March of this year, most of the influential evangelical pastors in our country would have been in agreement that for saints to intentionally plan to not gather together for corporate worship would be a sin. And many would have used this verse to enforce that. Shortly after COVID hit, however, many of those same leaders began to waver on their interpretation of this verse. They began to say that the gathering commanded in this passage could be fully accomplished in small gatherings after all. But now that the state governments across our country have prohibited even home gatherings with people outside of their immediate household, many Christian pastors are still going down that track and are not only complying with those orders, but demanding that members of their congregations do not meet. Brothers and sisters, this is a great and shameful error. Absolutely wrong and inappropriate. Because this verse commands us to not neglect to meet together. What do you think that says to the world around us? What does it say? We follow the Bible, unless you don't want us to. We follow the Bible, unless there might be uh, repercussions. We don't have that right. This is why at this church, we must we, we preach this to you. We must have an uncompromising commitment to the Word of God. Uncompromising. So that we don't go, well, it used to mean that, but maybe it doesn't mean that anymore. We don't play that game. This is why we must have a tenacious resolve to please God rather than men. So we don't go, well, you tell us what you think it means, and we'll just do that. We have to go, God, I could be wrong. But what do you mean by this? Do you really mean we actually should meet together? And even our author acknowledges that some have made the error of not gathering as they are commanded. That's why it says, as is the habit of some. In other words, these Hebrews, who are the audience of this letter, can look around them and they can go, ah, we know who you mean. There are those who say, we don't need to get together, and they don't. They made a habit of not being together. Now, is it possible for you to miss a Sunday or a small group gathering, some church event, and it not be a sin? Of course. Of course. The word here in Greek is ethos, habit, custom, practice. It's necessarily, it is not necessarily sinful for a person to miss getting together with other believers occasionally. My goodness, sickness, travel, a whole host of things. That could make it so a person would have to not get together when they might have typically done so. Otherwise, one family here, one person here, certainly that's going to happen. But how long can Christians abstain from meeting together without it being disobedience until it becomes a habit? You see that? That's the problem. Not the, well, we missed that week or that one. There's no like perfect attendance award that you give out at the end of the year, you know, for those who've never missed any of the things. You cannot make a habit of it, though. If you habitually neglect meeting together, then you are in error. 
This was the central point of discussion among the elders at our church regarding what to do with restrictions and things like that, uh, gathering together on Sundays, uh, small groups, all that kind of stuff in this last year. I've said this before. This was not a hard year to make decisions as pastors. It really wasn't. We didn't go, ah, should we meet or not? That was never the question. We were 100% united. We had been long before 2020 came. We had been committed to do what God says even up to, until death. That was the plan. So when 2020 came, the, the one part that we did have to go, let's, let's make sure we're really honoring what God is saying here, revolved around the question of habitual. What, what constitutes a habit? We used the language threshold. And uh, the elders we had on, on, on the uh, elder board, we kind of uh, thought, well, what's our threshold of saying, okay, we'll, we'll abstain from meeting due to, we don't know what's going on, how dangerous this COVID thing is. We hear government restrictions. We want to submit to our government. We're not the anti-government people. We really do want to be submissive people. So how can we do that? The question about, for us was only about threshold. What's appropriate? Two weeks? Four weeks? Six weeks? For the record, it was never more than six. That was always the line somehow. I don't know why we landed there. It might, may seem arbitrary. Maybe it is. But we had to go, well, what, what would be a habit? But I was so grateful to be amongst brothers in Christ and helping try to make that decision together where they literally would say, better to gather and die than to disobey God and live. Oh, man. I am so blessed to be amongst those men. Better to gather and go to prison than for us to not obey our Lord. I promise you, as Christians in America today, while we have, may have some gray area in determine, determining exactly what habit would be, I promise you, we are long past that time now. Christians need to meet. The objection that we get to this in this year is, what about during time of emergency? Can you not meet together for a time of emergency? Perhaps for a very limited time, I suspect. Perhaps if the conditions warranted it, uh, you could even voluntarily make adjustments to how you worship for a season or a time. Maybe, maybe that's how you could do that. Uh, you got a volcano blowing up next to your building. Maybe you can cancel Sunday services that morning, right? That kind of thing and go worship somewhere else. <laughs> there's, there's other solutions to this. But no emergency may be an excuse for us to disobey God. We may not neglect to meet together. There's no asterisk here. There's no footnote down at the bottom of your Bible that says, in case of 2020, disregard. And 2021, maybe, and beyond. And for the record, I actually think the text speaks to that idea of emergencies, tribulation, suffering, and trial. Because look at the very next portion of this verse. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, just to acknowledge this, what's that day drawing near? Well, some Christians see this as a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem that was still in the future of this audience. They were looking forward to the, that destruction coming in, in the future of their time. Others, though, see this as a reference to the final day of Jesus' return. I, I actually think that that's more likely. Uh, you could also have a kind of a middle ground where you'd say maybe it's both. Like maybe they knew that there was something Im imminent to them, but we all today know that there's something coming in our future. Either way, whichever of those this actually means, which is really hard to determine, 
We can all agree that this audience was facing extreme trials and would face even harsher ones in their own lifetimes. But before Jesus returns, there will be many more trials for us to face. And the author here is telling us this. When you see those things, you should be all the more diligent to meet together, not less. All the more diligent. When we observe crazy things in the world, that should make us more committed to meeting, not less. The church does not stop being the church when there is an emergency. In fact, it is often the case that God uses emergencies to shake his church awake. It's hard to not have right here in our minds COVID, masks, separation, all that kind of stuff because of how we're living today, right? That's like right here. In fact, I'd be willing to bet you that some of the stuff that I just said would probably roll off the, the lips of most Christians last year, a year from now, a year ago. Well, yeah, of course, you meet, to meet together. Even if we're told not to, we will. Even if there's sickness or distress, we should do that anyway. But this year has been crazy. I expect that in certain areas of our lives, as a result of things that happened this year, we will see masks required indefinitely. At least by certain individuals in such places as hospitals, retirement homes, airports, etc. I think that that's likely, that those will always be a mainstay for the rest of our life. I think that we will see those every day. Just like after September 11th, now you're not allowed to bring like nail clippers on a plane. That didn't go away. I don't think these will either. I've said before that I'm very, very skeptical of the mask stuff. And the reason I'm skeptical is not because I think that they're super ineffective. That would be irrelevant if I thought that. It's because I think that they don't provide enough benefit to cost. I think that the cost of a government telling its people what they may do in private, the cost of people being hindered in their social interactions is much higher than you and I can pay. And I think that we're going to come up short soon. But the restrictions on healthy people being together Mandated involuntary isolation is one of the most damaging schemes we could have possibly come up with. I've complied with private business rules and on many times with masks, wear, wear a mask to go into a store or something, social distancing, staying away, even if reluctantly. We've told you here many times, if, you're, if you feel you need to wear a mask for a period of time, for whatever reason, you, you can do so. Please, feel free to do so. We've even said that if a person were to get sick or were just to make a strategic decision to lay low and not attend services or small groups for a couple of weeks, you can do so without judgment. But we absolutely may not willingly make a habit of not meeting together. We may not do that. My battle is here. Here at the church, we cannot give one inch of ground on this count. Not because we're stubborn, but because of the word of God. We must be willing to die rather than dishonor our God. Go to jail rather than dishonor our God. We're not permitted by him to comply with ongoing restrictions on gathering. 
Our pastors are not special in this. This, is, this has been helpful to see out there. This is not just like the mission church is unique in this. Like, whoa, we're the only ones who think this way. We're doing what every faithful pastor should do in this situation. I feel very confident to say that. This should be a total qualifier for a pastor in this season of life. There are, there are things like that that are really obvious to us. Imagine you're a father of a young woman and a suitor comes to visit with you and ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. And you ask him, are you willing to die for her? Are you willing to lay down your life for her? Go to jail for her? If he hesitates for even a moment, he does not get the blessing. This is one of the most fundamental responsibilities of a pastor. This is an absolute qualifier as we're praying that the Lord will bring a few more elders to help us with the growing church. You're willing to lay down your life in defense of Christ's bride? Are you willing to go to jail for honoring what God has clearly commanded for his church to do? I've said before, and surely I will have to say many more times, the church is the last stand for the good of our nation, for the love of our neighbor, we as believers in America must not surrender one inch of our God-given Christian liberties in the church. Because after the church, all that's left to invade is your home. That's it. This is the last institution. While COVID restrictions are so dominantly on our minds these days, this is obviously, I want you, I want you to hear this from me. It's hard to not apply this to exactly our situation because that's what's going on. But I want to be more helpful to you than just 2020. I don't want this sermon to just be irrelevant if someone looks back at this 10 or 15 years from now. That's not the main context of this passage, is COVID type of stuff. So in order to not over-contextualize this verse, let's just consider what this should look like beyond 2020, okay? And then seek to apply that even here and now in our lives. I'm going to give you five things in closing that I think we get as commands in this uh, few verses we've just read through together. First, no matter what the future holds for us, you and I are to be in regular fellowship with other believers in which we stir up one another to love. That was what we saw in verse 24. Love may not always come naturally to you. You're going to need to be helped with this sometime. One of our convictions here is that Christians are to have a ferocious love for others. We don't expect that we will wake up every morning with this perfect love. Ah, we don't struggle with loving everybody. This is great. No, we're going to struggle with this. We're going to need to be stirred up to love one another. You're going to wake up some morning and you're going to see an article or, or, or see a news report or interact with somebody. And you're not going to feel very loving. You're going to hear the words of some politician or newscaster or See some Twitter personality say something that just makes you go, what's the matter with these people? And you're going to need a brother or sister in Christ to stir up some love and help you go, you know, I understand why you're frustrated by that. But that person, that's an image bearer of God. And you're not better than them. And they're going to die someday and spend an eternity either in the blessed glory of their Savior or reject him and spend an eternity in hell apart from him. Maybe you should show some compassion. And we're going to need someone to stir us up. <sighs> that's, right, that's right, that's right, that's right. We need to love. Sometimes it's going to be hard to love fellow believers. 
Sometimes it's going to be hard to love your spouse. Sometimes it's going to be hard to love your kids. Sometimes it's certainly it's going to be hard for you to love God, never in a fault of his own. We're going to need to be stirred up to love. Number one, stir up one another to love. Number two, stir up one another to good works. You and I need to be helped with this too. You need someone in your business knowing what's going on. And I, I don't mean in some weird cultish way where, where you, you like write down every little thing that you do, but you need someone you spend time with and just share your heart and tell them what's actually going on. Or, hey, what are the obstacles in your heart these days between you and, and peace with God? What are some places that I can be praying for you? What are some places I can help you practically overcome some sin struggles? What are some areas that you feel like God is pointing you towards active things he wants you to go do? that you, just, you need encouragement to go towards. What are those things? We need believers to do that for us. Your life is being watched by God. And we are to live lives that honor him, but we're also being watched by the world. We're being watched by our children. As Christians, we are to be slow to judge. This is awesome. This is such a patient and generous kind of attachment with one another. This isn't the scrutinizing like we're on an eternal witch hunt with every person in our life who did something wrong. No, tons of grace, tons of mercy, tons of generosity and patience offered with our brothers and sisters. That's why even when I say harsh things, like pastors should not command their people to not meet together. For the record, that's a sin. No pastor should ever say that to their people. But I love them. And I need them to see my blind spots. And press on me. I need you to see my blind spots and press on me. Because I need to be stirred up towards good works. It's not like I've got this taken care of. No, all of us are going to need this. Even when we see the problem with others and bring it to them, we do so in love. We remove the, the plank from our own eye before we seek to remove the speck from our brother's eye in love. Stir up one another to good works. Third, don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to meet together. That's verse 25. While nothing short of corporate gathering can fully, fully satisfy this command, it is clear from the entirety of the Bible that Christians are a gathering people. House to house. Coffee shop to coffee shop. Restaurant to restaurant. Park to park. Church lobby to church lobby. We gather together. There are many reasons other than COVID that a person might have for not meeting together. None of them are sufficient to make it a habit. This is a worthy battle. You need to figure this out. Even if you can only get together infrequently. Let's say you've got, you've got just a weird work schedule. You work weird times. There's probably some other Christian in your life who has a weird work schedule like you. I know guys who work the graveyard shift. And on the days they're off, they'd be happy to meet with you at 1 a.m. Because they're wide awake. We have groups that meet regularly here, early morning to late at night, all types of different time slots. Why? Because it's worth sacrificing to meet together. It's a worthy endeavor. Leave the church slow. Talk to people on the way out. Get to know them. Ask their name. If you forget their name, I keep forgetting your name. Let's do dinner and I'll never forget your name again. What's your phone number? Seriously. Christians need to gather together. We need to be in one another's lives. We need to not neglect this whether it's formally in a small group, like a regular planned rhythm of your life, or informally. Just, I haven't, I haven't met that person yet. We haven't done lunch yet. We haven't done, Just connect with believers. It's awesome. 
And when you're together, be intentional about stirring one another up to love and good works and to encourage one another. Don't wait for an invitation. Offer one. Practical help. Don't wait for an invitation. If you're an introvert, you're like, man, that's not me. Well, it needs to be you at some level. I'll admit, extroverts have an easier time at this. If you're an extroverted out there, you owe it to your introverted Christian brothers and sisters to be the first one to go and ask them out, okay? You owe it to them. If you're the, raise your hand if you're an extrovert. Two of mine. Okay, you need to be the ones to be first to invite, okay? But the introverts out there, guys, you need to overcome that a little bit too, all right? You need to offer that invite. Step out there. It's awesome what God does in the lives of people when you gather with one another. Here on Sunday gatherings, our midweek things we do together, and just informally, it's awesome. So much more to say on that. But fourthly, we need to encourage one another. See how that was part of verse 25? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. What does it mean to encourage one another? To instill courage. Literally, give courage to somebody. Prod, provoke their courage. We're going to need this because it's so easy for us to lose heart. It's easy when our view is on the world to think that we're losing it's easy when our, our, our eyes are on ourselves and just our own sinful, fallen, broken nature and our own errors and sin for us to think that we're losing. We need to be encouraged. The Christian life requires courage and oftentimes that courage is going to come from another brother or sister in your life who offers it to you. And lastly, fifth, you are to do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. When times get rough, don't wait to be stirred, but activate. If you're one of those preppers who the next time there's a run on Costco for all the toilet paper, you're rushing out there because you know a guy who's propping the back door open. So you're gonna, listen, on your list of prepper supplies, and I know you're out there, you make sure on that list is call a believer and encourage him or her. Schedule dinner with that family. That's what needs to be on your prepper list. We, we're, not, we're not the people who just have a, a pile of bug-out bags. You know what that means? You preppers know what that means. If you don't know what a bug-out bag is, find the guy with cargo pants on the way out. He will tell you. I'm, a, I'm one of those kind of guys. Come ask me. I'll tell you. You don't, you don't run for the hills alone. You know, Jesus even says this in Matthew 24, that the abomination of desolation will come, and, and that when, when this terrible attack is going to come upon the people of God, he says, run for the hills. But we don't scatter. We go together. That's the point. If something goes down that literally this whole place blows up, we need to go together to what we're going to next. That's how we operate. We don't just psh, like the cockroaches into the night. We are to gather. If any one of you goes to jail for the gospel, not for your own dumb behavior, but for the gospel, well, you better, you better bet that someone else is following on your heels so you're not alone in there. I know lots of ways to get into jail. Getting out's harder. We go together. Those five things from this passage. Stir up one another to love and to good works. Do not neglect to meet together, no matter what anyone tells you. Encourage one another and do all these things all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, these things, I believe, are so life-giving to us. They're so natural to us in so many ways that when we're doing them, we know it's right. 
But Lord, we still need to be encouraged by your word to do them. Sometimes we can be lulled into a sleep. Sometimes we can just forget how important it is to gather. Sometimes we can forget how important it is to, to be in a relationship where we stir one another up to love and good works. Help us, Father. Gift us with those things that we need through your church. And Father, where we have not done that, we've not activated, activate our hearts, Lord. Help us to be eager to do that for the others around us that we love. Lord, I am well aware that there may be non-believers hearing this. Uh, some here now today with us, perhaps, who are thinking, man, these Christians are kind of crazy. I don't understand how that works out. Father, I pray that you would convict the heart of sin. You'd send your Holy Spirit that a person would repent of their sins and turn in faith to you, that they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Father, I pray that you wouldn't let somebody finish the day who has heard this sermon does not yet believe in you, but that they would find some Christian, some believer in their life. They'd find a Bible or an app and open it up and read to know what is true. Father, continue to build your kingdom. Give us the great privilege of being a part of that by doing these very things you have commanded. And never, ever let, Father, please, let our doctrine sit idle and still that all the beautiful truths that we know don't produce in us the things that you've commanded in this passage. We love you, Lord, and ask for your help in these things according to Jesus and his good work. We pray these things in his name. Amen.